0: Hello and welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson bringing to you this week, well, news almost exclusively from the United States, also some bits from the United Kingdom, and a see you in hell from World War II in Albania. Starting out in the United Kingdom, the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, Conservative Boris Johnson, who has been, you know, sliding further and further to the right, especially when it comes to anti-immigrant and racist policies of that nature, is facing the most serious leadership challenge that he has yet. There have been almost 50 resignations of aides and ministers and, you know, deputy ministers in the conservative government in the last 24 hours alone. This uh, I'm recording this podcast on Wednesday, the 6th in the Pacific time zone. So if, you know, things have escalated further by the time I release it, then, you know, you'll just have to get that additional information somewhere else. Boris Johnson is still refusing to resign in the face of this massive exodus of leadership and even like sub-leadership from his party. This is after he faced a successful no-confidence vote, which is the official way to oust the leader of a political party from the parliament in the United Kingdom. He says that he won't go, but it's literally possible that he might already be gone, that he might have announced that he was resigning by the time that you listen to this on the 7th or the 8th of July, 2022. So, you know, uh, we'll just have to see about that. Turning to the United States, the January 6th panel has had some updates, some additional things that they're doing. They have issued several subpoenas in the last several weeks, partly in regards to the sort of surprise testimony of Ms. Hutchinson, the aide to Mark Meadows, Donald Trump's chief of staff during the attempted coup. Now, Donald Trump's chief counsel, uh, which is his his chief lawyer, his chief personal lawyer, not the attorney general, you know, the head of the Department of Justice. Uh, this guy's name was Pat Cipollone. Uh, Cipollone has gotten a subpoena from the January 6th committee, and he's agreed to talk to them. Uh, unlike a lot of other top, very close Trump aides, he's agreed to go talk to them. This is a big deal because Cipollone is now going to be essentially the highest ranked person in the Trump White House who is going to agree to this subpoena. Uh, he says that it's possible that they won't like what he has to say because, you know, he's a super conservative lawyer. Right. That's why Trump chose him. So it's possible that he'll just be like, oh, you know, uh, privileges and executive privilege and blah, blah, blah. And I can't say anything. However, Cipollone is trying to present himself as somebody who opposed a lot of Trump's power grabs and thought that, you know, election stealing and shit like that wasn't stuff that they should be able to do. And so it's possible that he's going to be, you know, trying to present himself as like an unwilling witness in the Trump White House as opposed to, you know, what he really was, which was a collaborator, somebody who knew about their plans to steal the election and didn't immediately call all major news agencies to say, the president and several of his lawyers are planning to steal an election and I resign because of it. You know, he, he didn't do that. Speaking of the electoral bullshit that Trump and his allies tried to pull in the 2020 election, uh, we have now news that there have been more subpoenas in a, another investigation of Trump's allies. This one, not from the federal government, but from Georgia. Specifically, these are local organizations, local local municipalities and counties and stuff in Georgia who are engaging in big criminal investigations about election racketeering and election meddling in their state, specifically regarding Trump and his allies' attempts to prevent their electoral votes from being counted correctly, to prevent Georgia's electoral votes from being counted correctly, and to prevent Georgia's electoral vote count from going to Joe Biden. A lot of big names have gotten some subpoenas from this, including Rudy Giuliani, Lindsey Graham, John Eastman. These are all super close Trump allies during and up to the coup itself. They've all been subpoenaed. These people have previously refused to speak to the federal government about this, but like the escalating pressure that they're receiving is extremely good news if you hate Donald Trump and his allies. Uh, this is only one of many local and state cases which might come back to bite the Trump people later, and which will continue to be, you know, an albatross hanging over their head, uh, foreboding extreme problems for them electorally as they come about. However, it's likely that they are going to be, like, trying to kick this can down the road, just like they did with the federal investigation with the January 6th Special Investigation Committee. And speaking of kicking the can down the road, Trump himself is issuing, you know, very serious signals that he's Really considering just saying, hey, I'm running for president in 2024 very early, like as soon as in the next couple of months, even before the midterm elections. Usually people wait to formally announce until during or just after midterm election season. But Trump might be signaling that he will do that ahead of time. This could be an extremely good idea for him, right? It centers the electoral cycle on him, which has always been the case. Uh, Any press is good press for Donald Trump. At least he seems to think this way, especially when it comes to primary season. He is also probably trying to shore up support within the Republican Party ahead of the midterm cycle to try to make sure that Trump loyalists, Trump people, you know, like the people who actually believed in Donald Trump's presidency, are the ones who are in leadership in Congress to make sure that people campaign on, oh, I was a loyal Trump supporter when he was in office and I want to be able to serve him when he's president again in 2024, right? You know, that's what he's trying to secure here. He's also clearly trying to get the electoral cycle focused on his message, on him saying like, yes, I'm running for president again, as opposed to being focused on all of the terrible, dangerous, and very scary for him investigations that he is facing. Finally, in United States Electoral News, the Supreme Court of the United States has agreed to hear a case which uh, has all the markings of really changing how elections work in the United States. They've agreed to hear a case that is brought forth by a bunch of people who follow an extremely conservative interpretation of the Constitution, specifically the part of the Constitution that gives arguably state legislatures the right to determine how elections are held and organized in their states. Now, this part of the Constitution was previously used to justify all sorts of bullshit, uh, involving like extreme racist control over the electoral process and over electoral vote counting and especially over the drawing of electoral maps. If this case breaks in an extremely conservative way, which we have every reason to expect that it will, given the current makeup of the United States Supreme Court, it could mean that in many states, especially states controlled by Republicans, there would be gerrymandering almost on an on a previously unprecedented level uh, but it could mean a lot more it could even like it could mean a return to the time when state legislatures appointed senators which is something that was happening up until the 1960s in the united states and you know that could easily happen in an extremely conservative state where an extremely conservative state legislature could decide that it has that power and could use that power in order to shore up similar Uh, powers and organizations. Finally, of course, I have to talk about the recent shooting in Highland Park, Illinois. Highland Park is a relatively middle-class, upper-middle-class suburb of Chicago, and there was a shooting there on the 4th of July, which was Monday this week. The shooter, Robert Cremo III, was extremely young. You know, he was in his early 20s and was primarily known prior to his engaging in the shooting, for being a an online rapper. You know, he had a SoundCloud, he had a Discord, he had uh, a bunch of other forms and places where people could access his music. He was verified on Spotify. He actually was, you know, relatively popular and successful in an underground sense. And the reason that I'm talking about him in this podcast is that he has questionable relationship to the right wing it's, it's it remains somewhat confusing um and i'm going to list out some of the reasons that it seems as if this person was a right winger however i i confess that i think that as of yet we're not entire we don't have exactly quite enough information to determine whether or not this was somebody who actually truly earnestly personally believed in the right wing or in fascism or if this was sort of like an elaborate and disgusting personification of you know, essentially shit posting, right? His attacks, which have led to the deaths of at least seven people and the injuries, severe injuries of several deaths and others, stemmed from or at least followed an extreme glorification of violence, which occurred not only in his music, but also in his personal life. You know, the testimony of his friends indicates that he actually said a lot of this sort of shit in public as well. When it comes to not just violence as such, but right-wing stuff, there's some evidence here. Uh, one of them is that he was followed by, n- not just he followed, but he was followed by several other sort of tertiary or D-lister right-wing provocateur type people, um, including Andy No, uh, who is a serious right-wing provocateur online. Again, it's unclear if that's just like him doing shitposty type stuff on the internet, or if that's because he was putting out enough content or in contact with these people. We know that he was present at Trump rallies, that he had Trump flags and Trump paraphernalia. But again, his friends seem to claim that he was, quote, apolitical. So, you know, was he there in an ironic or a post-ironic way? Uh, We also know that the symbol that he used for his planned and, you know, kind of realized fashion design company extremely closely resembles that of a Finnish fascist organization. You know, they're they're an extreme right-wing patriotic organization called Soman Sisu, but it's remaining unclear whether they're related at all. The thing is that whether or not he was an earnest right-winger, or whether he used its trappings and its language and its violence in order to make a name for himself or in order to, you know, gain clout on Online communities that venerate violence for violence's sake—you know, not not partisan violence, but just violence for violence's sake. The point is that this kind of ironic, post-ironic, questionable posture is the way a lot of young people engage with fascism, with racism, with sexism, with homophobia—not just homophobia, but like queer bashing. Uh, that's how they do it. Um, that's how they get away with it. They say that it's a joke or that it's a posture, or that you don't understand, or that it's just for fun, or that they don't really believe it. The thing is that whether or not he believed these things, he was a young man who owned a bunch of Trump stuff, went to Trump rallies, said horrible shit, and then murdered seven people. And he survived because he's white and was not shot by the police when he was being apprehended. So unfortunately, we're going to have to keep our ears open, hearing about more stuff about this person to determine whether or not he was an earnest fascist or if he was, you know, a young person who was galvanized into violence. Finally, going to close out this episode like I do every week with See You in Hell, a segment celebrating the deaths of prominent right-wing figures in history. This week, we're going to World War II Albania, and I'm talking about Tefik Mborja. Uh, who is the leader of the Albanian Fascist Party and a collaborator with the Italian fascists. Maborgia was born in what was then the Ottoman Empire in 1888, which had at that point controlled what is now Albania for several hundred years. After the fall of the Ottoman Empire with World War I, uh, Maborgia entered politics at the time between World War One and World War II as an opponent of King Zog, uh, who led that country, uh, Albania, uh, first as the prime minister, then as the president, and then as the king. Uh, Moborja was not a supporter of Zog. Like I said, he was an opponent of Zog. He supported instead the Orthodox priest, Theofa Noli, who led a sort of nationalist uprising against Zog in the name of Albanian nationalism and romanticism. During that government, during Noli's government, Moborja worked in Italy on the behalf of the Albanian government in an attempt to form diplomatic ties not with Italy specifically, but actually with the Soviet Union. However, there he met the foreign minister of Italy, which was fascist by then, uh, and there he got a lot of connections with the Italian fascist party. That served him very well, because in 1939, fascist Italy invaded Albania, which at that point was ruled by Zog, Moborgia's sort of serious political enemy, um, and the Italian fascists established the Albanian fascist party. Mborja was chosen by the Italian fascist government to lead that party because of his political connections. So he's a, he's a pure collaborator, right? He was literally appointed by an occupying fascist force to rule his own country on their behalf. Uh, this is a standard collaborationist government that was working closely with the Italian fascists and changing its policy alongside them. He held that office, the head of the Albanian Fascist Party, until 1944, and he was extremely influential in that government, which, like all fascist governments, was engaged in horrible repression against its people and also uh, extermination policies against people whom they considered to be uh, political, ethnic, religious outsiders like I said, Muborja held that office until 1944, when he was arrested by Albanian communist insurgents who were taking over Albania in the wake of the impending end of the European theater of World War II. He was sentenced to 20 years in prison by an Albanian court, and he died in Albanian prison this week in history, July 1st, 1954, having been poisoned by one of his fellow prisoners. So, Tefik Mborsha, we will see you in hell. Alright, that was Fifteen Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, Thank you, Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro and graphics. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. Please leave a review on whatever it is you're listening to this on. Please check out my Patreon at patreon.com/slash fifteen minutes of fascism. That's fifteen minutes of fascism spelled out on all one word. That's also where you can reach me on Gmail, fifteen minutes of fascism at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter at Hist of the Right, that's H-I-S-T-of-The Right. And also fascism15 at twitter all right i will get back to you next week